0: Welcome to Podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today we have John Zichterman joining us. John is one of the co-hosts of the podcast Beep Beep Lettuce. And uh, we met up on Twitter recently and we're like, uh, he had a call out for doing a podcast on Magno. So here we are. John, (laughs) welcome to the show, man.
1: Thanks for having me on. Uh, Absolutely. I'm glad that somebody took me up on my extremely aimless (laughs) posting about wanting to talk about (laughs) Nestor Machno on a, on a podcast, so it's great yeah. to be here. Um, yeah, I've listened to a bunch of episodes of this show, and uh, I really enjoy it. It's just fun to reach out to like other podcasters, and uh, it's fun doing these remote episodes. I know we're pretty far away, so thanks for having me on.
0: Yes, yeah, so, uh, actually, so you're you're in Pittsburgh, right?
1: Yep, that's correct.
0: And I'm of course here in Austin, Texas. So that's I don't know. It's kind of cool to meet up with people through Twitter just randomly and then do a podcast.
1: Yeah, um, that's that's one of the things I really like about like the podcasting community in general is you can really reach across a lot of like geographic divides that would otherwise be really hard to do. Although I've been impressed with the podcasting scene up around here. I mean, the Street Fight guys are right over in Columbus, uh, and I have a friend. Some friends who do the mandatory overtime podcast, Mandatory OT, they're also out of uh, Eastern Ohio. So, but it's so cool. tell me. Oh, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. I'll answer your question.
0: I was just going to ask you to uh, just tell us a little bit before we get, get started, um, just to tell us a little bit about your show, Beep Beep Lettuce, kind of when you guys got started, what sort of the, the theme, if there is one.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, we got started, I think, like five months ago. Something like that. Uh, and we've been doing weekly episodes. Beep Beep Lettuce is just like, I guess originally we envisioned it as like drive time, uh, like political commentary, like morning talk radio, uh, DJ kind of stuff. But with like a leftist political bent and with a lot of weed jokes. And we <laughs> we nice. followed through on the political bent. The weed jokes are actually the harder part, not the easier part. Um, but we hosted it on a page that we made, which was also called Beep Beep Lettuce which was just like a lot of weed memes. And I think more than anything, that's really helped us get a foothold is that we had a page that already had 10,000 likes before we started posting episodes of the show. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's really fun. It's me, Todd, Chris, and Bryn. And I guess if there's a theme, it's just that we're all like loudmouth communists and we want to talk about what we see going on around us.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Um, So what's your kind of, I guess tendency in terms of communism are you because we're talking about magno i'm assuming you're kind of an anacom but yeah
1: am i i've I've run i ran a meme page for many years called ancom ball which was like a direct response to anarchy ball being an anarcho-capitalist page uh and i was like well anarchy ball should be an anarchist communist page because that's really what anarchism is you know that's not historically that's the definition so i definitely um I would say the bulk of my radicalization has come from anarchist-communist ideals. Uh, I definitely have a great reverence for Peter Kropotkin and, uh, like, Emma Goldman, Berkman, Machno, Malatesta, kind of the very libertarian strand of communism or the communist strand of anarchism, however you want to look at it. I have, like, a little bit—I have a lot of affinity now for, like, egoist— Post left anarchism, a lot of the weirder okay. tendencies. I read a lot of bookchin. I had a big bookchin phase, but yeah, I mean, like if I had to give it to you in like a quick digestible format, I'd say I'm an I'm an anarchist communist.
0: Okay, I mean, th- I think that's the sort of tendency, and I think some of the egoism as well, because my background is more so. I was kind of more on the right libertarian side, kind of in high school. Okay, so I definitely, I still have like I think I have that affinity for some aspects of that individualism or that that egoist kind of idea.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I but mean I've I, like, I you know,
0: I've grown and learned and been exposed to a lot more um robust critiques and I don't know, a deeper understanding of Marx and some of the other, you know, ideas in the yeah. sort of communist uh
1: Well, to me like right libertarianism has one half of the equation put together fairly well, they understand that, like, the world is a lot of individual wills trying to interact at a very atomized level, and, like, they're just trying to, like, come from a place of being, I guess, realistic um, about the way that the world works, but they they stop short of the realization that making the world a better place for everybody is going to have so many effects that give you more opportunities to make it better for yourself that any quote unquote like r- agent acting in their rational self interest—that's the phrase we we hear in capitalist apologia a lot—is rational self interest. I think rational self interest is organizing with people to get the means of production into the hands of the working class. To me, that's the if you're really rational and self interested, that's what you should be working on. I guess unless you're already rich and powerful, in which case, you know, I don't really care about you. You know, you you stand opposed to my interests. So right. for me. Um, and a lot of people have that, like, I mean, just today I was posting about being a quote unquote, I called myself a libertarian communist in a post and somebody was like, oh, the phrase libertarian communist makes my head hurt. And I just, (laughs) uh, I just posted a, or commented a picture of subcommandante Marcos. And I was like, I only study the masters, but I mean, (laughs) people don't realize there is this like long history of like libertarian Marxist and anarchist communist traditions And today we have, you know, the EZLN and the Zapatistas are not exactly anarchist communist but they're informed by libertarian Marxism, and they're informed by some anarchist strains, among other things, indigenous practices to their region and stuff. Um, And then you have Rojava in uh, present-day, like Kurdistan or like parts of Syria and Iraq uh, and other countries. Um, And they are also very... I mean, their leader, Ochilan, is very influenced by the writings of Bookchin, who is very influenced by the writings of Marx and Kropotkin, so there's not, you know, they're not anarchist communist either, but there is a lineage of influence from the libertarian left, and I feel like it's a very undersung kind of part of the political spectrum, and that's why I want to talk to people about Machno, because I feel like when people look at revolutionaries, they want like a Robin Hood kind of figure. Machno is that. He's exactly that. Uh, if you don't believe everything Trotsky ever wrote about him and you actually just kind of kind of dig into, and I like Trotsky, but he was a bitter old man, uh, and you kind of dig into the, the meat and potatoes of what Machno actually did, you'll see that he's pretty fucking cool. I mean, you know, pe- leading peasant uprisings, establishing a free territory larger than Great Britain. Um, he fucking robbed Denikin's armored train. He did so much cool shit, and people don't even know that he existed.
0: Yeah, I think I only was exposed to him through, I, f- I found a meme, and I think I actually sent you this yeah. on Twitter, and it was just, I guess, like the, uh, what the D&D kind of chart that had <laughs> Magno on there, and Book Chan and a number of others. I have yeah, to it post good. it in, in the show notes or something, but like that, I had never even heard of him before I saw that meme, and I had a friend of mine commented on the, initial post he was like yeah Magno Magno didn't do anything wrong <laughs> so that kind of <laughs> that kind of spurred my interest uh, um, but I, I... I'm definitely not uh up to speed on much uh like I said when we kind of did an initial talk right. I've seen some posts on reddit that kind of are shit talking I'm saying he su- um ended up supporting the the Kulaks and and what have you oh
1: yeah There's And so there much... was
0: rape and a bunch of other kind of misogynistic there's a lot of static
1: there. in the air surrounding Machno. Um, he's a super controversial figure for a lot of reasons, and that's why I kind of gravitated towards him, I think, because <laughs> nice. when I got uh edgy. Ra- yeah, when I got radicalized a little bit on more on Facebook than on other media platforms, and I was trying to come up with edgy, you know, content that would get traction on Ancomball, uh there the Stalin did nothing wrong meme on the authoritarian li- the so called authoritarian what? left. Of course they don't refer to themselves that way. Um, was in full swing. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, I got to make this Machno did nothing wrong. So I made a bunch of Machno did nothing wrong memes uh, and stuff. But as it turns out, Machno did do quite a few things wrong as I dig deeper. And and most of the stuff he's accused of is not true. I mean, it's it's revisionism. He fought a lot of different armies, a lot of different states, Um, so a lot of, you know, people don't speak fondly of anarchists because anarchists like to fight everybody. And as an anarchist, like, I'll tell you, we like to fight everybody. We're not, we're not easy to pacify, but, um, he, he was a complicated man. I mean, you know, you would be too, if you were in that position, he grew up very, very poor. Uh, he had to start working as a shepherd at like age seven, I think seven or eight. Um, his father died when he was very young he didn't have a lot of access to a good education. You know, he kept getting involved with these, like, little anarchist militias and bandit groups and stuff that were forming around. And I'm going to butcher this, but Huliai Poli, the the little oblast that he was born in, which is, like, a, a province or a county, uh, I guess. And, um, you know, he was in prison multiple times, and he just – he had a really, really rough go of it. But there's a lot of accusations of, like, anti-Semitism – uh, that I really don't think stick to Machno. Um And there's a lot of accusations of misogyny. Those do stick a lot more to Machno. He was very, very permissive of misogyny and, and quite permissive of sexual violence. Um, I would, you know, I, I typically disclaim that by also saying Ukrainian culture at large, very permissive of those things at that time. But then I disclaim the disclaimer by saying I'm not here to make excuses for dead revolutionaries. Obviously, we should be critical of that. Um, I just want us to have as accurate and like realistic historically of a conception of the man as we can. And with so much, so much shit in the waters, it can be very, very hard to sift out. Because like um, a lot of the accusations of anti-Semitism in particular came from Trotsky, because uh, when Machno was going around fighting. Every invading army you could think of. You had the Imperial German and uh, Austrian forces. You had peasant armies, the Green Armies that were rising up that were various types of chauvinists or self-interested or owed allegiance to this or that um, faction. And then you had the Denikinists. Plus, he was fighting the Red Army on and off, making alliances with them to fight Denikin, uh, having his alliances broken or breaking them himself. And he was just really put through the ringer. And every time he would... Um crush an army he would you know they execute the generals and stuff, but they offer all conscripted men to either join the machnovists or they could be let off with basically what was like a political lecture, and then they're like,' okay, now go home um or uh they or they could join the machnovists and that was and that was it so you had a lot of these guys who were part of very chauvinist monarchist, regressive reactionary forces um joining up with the Machnovists, and then some of them would try to initiate pogroms or other anti-Semitic acts or other like horrific things, and Machno would have to purge his own forces. And a lot of those executions he carried out personally, especially if it was a general of his forces or something that he caught uh, being anti-Semitic or, in, or encouraging it or even being too permissive of anti-Semitism, he would just perform uh, summary executions, which I guess— uh, when I was trying to be edgy online, that was also my response to the gulag. You know, the Stalinists love to throw like, gulag, you, you're gulag, you're gulag. I'm like, you know, summary execution, summary execution. <laughs> but I don't find that to be in good taste anymore. But it is historically accurate. Um, and it's just interesting because Makhno had a very hard line position about that. If you were captured by the Makhnovists, you were not put in a work camp. You were either sent home, you were you joined the Machnavists, um, and not necessarily the army, like you just settled down in the Machno Vashina or something, or you were shot there on the spot, depending on the nature of your crimes. So um, like the Denikinist generals and stuff, he executed all of them. Uh, but when he came across small enclaves of townspeople and stuff, he didn't, you know, he didn't execute them. He wasn't a monster. And in fact, um, what is it? The, the Red Army loved to call Machno and his forces kulaks, which they took a lot of land away from Kulaks and redistributed it to the peasants that were working for them. And he also um, took a lot of land away from a related political class to the Kulaks, the Pomestchiks, which were kind of a Ukrainian phenomenon of, like, landed peasantry. Um, and they were mostly, like, German Mennonite farmers who had come to uh, exploit the Ukrainian peasants. And he also redistributed the land— uh, from them despite their armed resistance, which is weird because they were Mennonites. They should have been totally pacifist, but they engaged in this extended um, thing called the Selbschutz, which was basically like them fighting off the Machnavists who were trying to redistribute their wealth.
0: Before we get too deep, um, how...
1: <laughs> <laughs> Before how... we get too deep.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, I just wanted to kind of get a sense of, did you how well acquainted are you with sort of what's going on in, like... Wh- what what kind of time period are we speaking about and i think it's good to give us at least some sort of context for you know what oh. i mean because you mentioned that magno's, fi- magno's fighting all these different forces but like what's going on in in terms of time and you know the right. russian revolution et cetera, et cetera. can you kind of situate us there because i mean i'm not very well acquainted myself with that history so i'm kind of curious
1: oh yeah definitely well so like um Machno, his early life was all in the the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Um, He didn't start commanding any forces until about 1917. He was trying to drive uh, monarchist forces from the imperial uh, German and Austrian armies out of the area, as well as beginning to expropriate land from the local kulaks and pomeschik so that was about 1917 when he started engaging in a lot of military strategy and that was also when um he gained a lot of his he gained his nickname botko which means little father because he was famously very short man he was like five four something like that a manlet Uh, a manlet a very very a robin hood manlet (laughs) uh robin hood manlet in tights uh and he um And then it was, like, 1917, 1918 that things started to really ramp up for him. And then, of course, you know, the Russian Revolution was brewing at that time. So he was traveling back and forth to Russia um, on and off and kind of learning uh, military tactics and strategy. A lot of stuff that he had learned while he had been imprisoned um, previously for engaging in acts of terrorism, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, uh, as an anarchist against, you know, Ukrainian nationalist forces um German nationalist forces, what have you. And then it was as the Russian Revolution really started to pick up that uh Machno became very, very infamous because, you know, he was offered by the Red Army many times to have his forces incorporated into theirs. Uh, but he didn't want to submit to the um to what he saw as the the hierarchical organization of the Red Army forces. He didn't agree with the way that Trotsky was managing his military strategy. And I mean, moreover, he didn't, he, he, had, he had a deep seated distrust of any kind of organization that had been ratified into a state. Uh, because when he had been in prison, he had spent a lot, a lot of time writing Kropotkin, or I'm sorry, reading Kropotkin's writings. And Kropotkin is very, very heavy on the idea that when you start to formally ratify things into hierarchical organizations that they begin to drift from serving the aims of the people in them to kind of becoming something that wants to achieve its own ends. It becomes this extant force kind of at the hands of either one of the leaders or maybe just as kind of its own body, um, as its own developed thing between people that starts to develop interests. Um, and Magna was very, very wary of that. And that's why during this whole time, he never... Um, I mean, I guess it's a little dishonest to say it this way because he obviously did have an influence on daily life in his area at that time, but he didn't rule like he didn't tell, he didn't allocate shares of food. He didn't set up any kind of central government for his workers' councils. He didn't do anything. Like if, if there was a farm and you lived on that farm, you organized that farm with the other people on that farm. He was very, very strict about making sure that everything was in the hands of everybody, so much so to the point where, like, if he would raid your farm, let's say you're a wealthy Mennonite landowner, he would give you the same portion of your own farm back. Let's say he didn't kill you. He gives you back (laughs) the, the same portion of your own farm that he gives to each one of the workers who lived on your farm, and, and so a lot of the stories of kind of the horrors suffered at the hands of the Magnavists come from these Mennonite accounts of Mennonite farmers who have their farms taken away, redistributed evenly among them and their workers. And now these workers who were suddenly on an even footing with their former, essentially slave masters, you know, beat the shit out of them and sometimes kill them. And they're like, well, that's terrible. And I'm like, eh, it's kind of what I would expect workers who had been under an oppressive yoke for so long to just up and do. I mean, it's certainly... It's certainly what I would up and do. And the other thing I like about Machno, um, especially in the early period, is that he really wasn't, like, a moralist. Um, he didn't say, like, you know, this is for the good of everybody. And he certainly didn't subscribe to Judeo-Christian morality. He just recognized that he saw with his own eyes people suffering in the countryside. And he said, you know, these people aren't going to stop suffering until they have in their hands what they need it can't just be platitudes it can't just be oh we're working to achieve some later perfect stateless society he um he was a firm believer that that change has has to happen imminently and physically uh for people to want to go along with it and that's why i mean he had so much authority for such a long time cuz he just led by example people were enamored with him there were stories around the countryside you know you think about a propaganda machine um like the propaganda machine, like the Bolshevik one, uh, they they paid to play a little bit. They had to push really hard. They have a lot. Of, they had a lot of intentional propaganda. Machno's propaganda spread like a meme. It was organic. It was just people talking to each other about this guy that could hold off thousands of men with a small band of 200, you know, in the forest. Um, but yeah, he did the majority of his fighting from like 1918 through 1921, uh, and then the fighting died down between him and the rest of the forces besides the Red Army. It basically just became a confrontation between the Machnavis forces and the Red Army forces. And at the end of his military campaign, he fought 25 battles in 24 days, uh, so a little over a battle a day against the Red Army before finally escaping into Romania with just a handful of men left. Uh, and then he later moved to Paris with his, his wife and, and child.
0: Now, at at this time was... Ukraine actually, had it been part of the Russian Empire or well, was it sort of its own area?
1: Right. So um, early in the Russian Revolution, the, the Bolsheviks tried to annex Ukraine a couple of times, but Ukraine was just kind of like hotly contested land in a lot of ways. The Ukrainian nationalists' hold on the region was fairly weak, and that was why you were seeing a lot of contestation from forces outside and inside Um, and just, it was also, um, you know, it's, it's the quote unquote breadbasket of Eastern Europe. So whenever there's a time of military confrontation, especially in this early, like, sort of just industrializing era, um, everybody was really, really concerned about what was going to happen in Ukraine because of the amount of grain, uh, that they produced. So when, when Mokno was eventually driven out of, his region of Ukraine, which was far from being the whole country. I mean Ukraine is massive. Um, that was one of the final nails in the coffin for the Bolsheviks establishing control and annexing it as part of the USSR. And uh, you know a lot of people talk about how I hear from a lot of people oh Ukrainian culture is national or, or is naturally kind of fascistic, you know it's it's inherently kind of chauvinist this and that and I'm like, well, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, neo-Nazi and like fascist and nationalist sentiment has been allowed to foment in Ukraine because everybody killed off all the fucking anarchists. You know, maybe if you hadn't, maybe if every single force, even the ones completely adjacent to them, like to me, the Red Army and the the Black Army, the the Makhnovists, were ideologically so 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 close together, but tactically the the differences, um in praxis, and those become especially prominent and important during wartime, uh, it was just too great of a wedge, uh, and they were not able to reconcile it. And it's a shame, because, you know, if if Ukraine had become fully insurrectionary, or if a a section of Ukraine had become fully insurrectionary along anarchist-communist lines, we might not have the neo-Nazi militias uh, that we see in Ukraine now. Although, to be honest, I I have to admit I'm not nearly as up-to-date on contemporary Ukrainian politics as I am on revolutionary period uh, Ukrainian politics.
0: You're way ahead of me. The only thing I really <laughs> know about Ukraine is, I mean, Oksana Bayul.
1: <laughs> oh, what was that? I'm sorry. My, my Wi-Fi cut out a little bit.
0: Oh, I was just saying that Uh, my only, I think, and this actually have had a fascination with Ukraine for a while due to, uh, I think it was the 1994- Winter Olympics, Oksana Bayul from the Ukraine okay. won the gold medal in figure skating that year. Nice. That, it was like the Nancy Kerrigan, uh, Tanya Harding year. Okay. It was that like, same Olympics. I don't Olympics. know anything
1: about the Olympics, but that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, it's interesting. Ukraine is one of those regions that doesn't really get examined a lot, I think, unless maybe you live near it. Like if you live in Romania or Russia, maybe Ukraine is really interesting to you. But people in the United States are just not that interested in Eastern Europe, especially where it kind of bumps up against Central Asia. Um, and I've become increasingly fascinated by that part of the world. Uh, I just saw, like, photos of a an underground subway system in, I want to say it's Kazakhstan. It might be Uzbekistan. It's definitely one of those um, Central Asian former USSR states and they just started allowing photography in their subways, and the photos are unfucking believable, absolutely incredible, and, like, when I moved up here, I just moved to a neighborhood in Pittsburgh called Mount Washington recently. I live right around the corner from an Uzbek restaurant, and I had no idea what the fuck Uzbek food was, and it's all halal, and it's really fucking good. It's mostly, like, rice and slow-cooked beef and, like, all this stuff, and it's, like, it's a sparsely populated region of the world, so like I guess I get why it doesn't get that much coverage, but there's so, so many cultures from that area that just go so underanalyzed. I mean, even... I mean, and I guess I shouldn't have high expectations for Americans who think Africa is like one country <laughs> right? And, and who think Asia is basically just China and Japan and that's it. Um, but, I mean, I think that there's there's so much to be gotten from historical examination of these regions and these like, you know, revolutionary figures like Machno to a lot of people. He's just a historical curiosity, you know, he's just like a footnote. Um, But I think it's really amazing how he managed to embody a political principle and really kind of like push it into action with the, with the decisions and the actions of his life. I think that's amazing. And that's that kind of energy where even if it comes from a different theoretical background, I would like to see people engaging in that more these days.
0: Oh, absolutely! I, I wholeheartedly agree there. Um, but yeah, I isn't. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Kiev is the capital of Ukraine. Yep. Which is, I think, one of the oldest cities in the world.
1: Yeah. Oh my God, the amount of history in that region. I mean, you think about it you're not that far north from, like, where the cradle of civilization is. There's this big strip of land that goes from, like, where India and Saudi Arabia uh, meet the ocean all the way up into, like, the Caucasus Mountains, and it goes across, like, northern Africa, and it goes up right across and adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea. That's where, I guess, the core of, like, civilization was really built. You have, like, Chinese empires and stuff growing in tandem with them for a lot of parts of um, history, uh, I guess what you would call like written history. But for the most part, I mean, what we the culture that you and I know uh, is derived very strongly from people's migration from that part of the world uh outward and and of course the people there originally migrated from sub-saharan africa and and so on and so back but it's just crazy like people don't realize the amount of history especially in the middle east because like i'll talk to people and they'll be like uh, okay so these are like racist chuds on the internet I, (laughs) i say i talk to people but this is this is just like trolls i guess i'm i'm enduring um And you see memes about, like, who contributed what to civilization, this and that. And I'm like, fucking, the Middle East is where it all began. That's where we got geometry, algebra. We still use their numeric visual representations. I mean, um, those are Arabian numerals, what you and I use, you know, the 1 and the 2 and the 3 symbol. Those are Arabic. Uh, And people like to just gloss over that. Like, the Golden Age of India contributed so much to world civilization. People don't know about it. Um and it's just crazy the amount of stuff that people people don't get into because they're not interested in history or philosophy or whatever they think it's this monolithic thing and that they're just going to have to read Kierkegaard and hear about how people conquered each other in the dark ages of Europe like there's so so much more to history than that and people don't even give it a fucking cursory examination and if you're really bored you can do what I do you can literally just look up like who was an anarchist Robin Hood figure and get way too involved in a fucking historical fandom
0: <laughs> um the real imp- i have the i have two questions for you they're very important questions oh yeah um number one did Magno do you think Magno would have smoked would he be a, a mids guy <laughs> what do you think his his habits yeah. were there
1: Magno was a um he was a forager he he's a he's a freegan. So he would only he would only smoke the pot that he and uh, that he and his his comrades had had grown or gathered themselves, or or he would accept donations from the peasantry. <laughs> but he wouldn't he would not force anybody to give up their to give up their mids or their dank unless, of course, they were a kulak or a pomeschik. In which case, the mids and dank would be distributed evenly among everybody on the land.
0: Question number two is <laughs> would. Magno had been a an incel or or just a, <laughs> a Chad vulsel.
1: <laughs> Magno was definitely a Chad uh Chad Volcel for sure. For sure you have to you have to have the will to to not touch yourself <laughs> and to or, or I don't even know if that's part of Volsell, I guess it is. Uh, you have to have an amazing amount of will if you want to rob an armored train and I imagine that voluntary celibacy takes that same amount of will at least. <laughs> um yeah machno was definitely uh a chad and and you can really you know you can divvy historical revolutionary figures up into uh virgins and chads and and that's why i developed my interest in machno is because i i wanted anarchists to have a comeback to stalin who was so i mean whether you like him or not stalin was a fucking chad don't at me (laughs) <laughs> Do not tag me in anything. Stalin was a Chad, and so was Machno. And so were your guys like, you know, Joseph Bras Tito, that He had amazing Chad energy. Thomas Sakara, <laughs> unbelievably Chad. Uh, Mao, though, Mao was an incel. I'll stand by that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, so, so, yeah. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think it's interesting. People don't... um. People don't examine a lot of stuff uh, just out of kind of convenience or because they think it's kind of this random little footnote in history. But I like how footnotes in history have been getting popular. Um, Again, the resurgence of interest in guys like uh, Max Stirner really makes me happy um, because he was kind of just like the OG, like, okay, by your logic, okay, Marx, but what if this, okay, well, by your logic, Hegel, well, then – uh, and I, I fucking love that attitude, and I just wish that there were more people in contemporary, like, politics and in social circles and even in science who were like that without devolving into, like, I don't know, annoying kind of Neil deGrasse Tyson-esque types where they're like, the, January 1st has no significance on the the astronomical calendar. And I'm like, uh, the things that you think have significance on the astronomical calendar only have significance because we think they're interesting anyway neil it's tautological. You're just you're just saying this is this and this is not this. I'm smarter than you. So, um I mean maybe that's what all of philosophy is anyway. It's one long series of like rejecting the guy before you's premise <laughs> and being like I've got this other old guy that I read who I think has an idea that I can spin into a new premise.
0: Yeah, the he- the Hegelian dialectic.
1: Yeah, that's the Hegelian dialect. Well, and that's why people freak out about like Stirner because he kind of rejects Dialectics. He's very um, what I forget. Somebody said about Stirner that um, he leaves you nowhere to go, right? You can't like build on his philosophy, and it's kind of like why his books are so short. Is because he's like, you know, Hegelian universals don't exist. Everything is just an inner relationship of particulars. Uh, you can only experience your own experiences, even if you're acting in a way that is serving somebody else, well, you're doing it because you want to, you're doing it because you get more out of it than you would get by not doing it. And that's pretty much it. And uh, he basically spends the rest of his work just refuting people like Feuerbach who come along and they're like, well, actually, no, there's this transcendental idealism to being alive that you're missing. And Scherner's like, well, by your logic, the transcendental idealism, you know, is really just my everyday experiences—you're not changing uh, the natural facts of the world; you're just reinterpreting them. And he's like, "I don't want to reinterpret them. I just want them. I just want to recognize that they can be interpreted, you know, dialectically." Sterner says, uh, "You've shown me that with this neat trick of dialectics, you can turn all into nothing, black into white, so on and so forth. How do you like it when I turn your neat trick of dialectics back upon you? How do you like it that I, when I defeat you with your own tools?" he says, um, and of course, I guess Foucault would be very pleased because he says no matter how well you try to escape Hegel, there he is standing in wait for you, and um, I guess you could argue that that even in that demolishment of dialectics, there's still a Hegelian kind of recognition-rejection synthesis that's happening there um, because I guess the, where you go from Stirner's point of view is just... Nowhere, You just have to start all over again. You start gathering particularities and trying to to make assessments without falling into the pitfalls that you did before. He's like a weird kind of soft reset button. I guess I like historical figures that feel like a reset button because that's what makhno kind of feels like to me too. It feels like he took a very contentious point in political time and Ukrainian culture in, uh, you know, political culture at large at that time, and he t- he turned it into something that he wanted it to be. He got his ideas out there, and, and Stirner, in his limited way, did the same thing, just publishing responses to Marx. Um, and then, I mean, I guess that's that's why I like, you know, Bookchin and, like, Ochilan, because they're very polemic writers. They really make you feel something when they write, um, and I guess that's what kind of drew me to podcasting, because when when you listen to a podcast and you can hear the excitement in somebody's voice when they talk about that like the the the, the money that i would pay oh my god the patreon subscriptions that i would subscribe <laughs> to be able to hear kropotkin narrate his own books maybe maybe someday we'll have the technology to reconstruct his his voice box and get him to read it um but we'll see
0: uh who's the so who's the other figure you mentioned um god damn it i lost the name but the uh the o- not Bookchin. I've heard of Bookchin, obviously.
1: Oçalan. Ochilan, Ochilan yes. okay. Abdullah uh, Ochilan, and I'm not 100% sure that I'm saying his last name correctly. Um he is a uh he's a revolutionary figure in present day the Rojavan revolution, okay. present day gotcha. Kurdistan. Uh he was the leader of the PKK for a long time, which was kind of like the um the part of the Kurdish resistance that operated within Turkey. Uh, he was prosecuted in the 90s on terrorist charges in Turkey. I might be getting some of these details a little bit wrong, but I'm mostly giving you the the spark notes here. And he was imprisoned on a special island prison built specifically for him, if I'm not mistaken, where he is the only prisoner. Um, and they're insanely inhumane conditions. He's been kept there for a very, very long time. Um, almost 20 years or over 20 years, something thereabouts right now. Um, and he's really interesting because he kind of he started the PKK, uh, which is not the same thing as the YPJ, YPG, but they're very closely related. All these Kurdish resistance groups operate kind of on like um, a federated basis or like a cell structure or like a loose confederation. There's a lot of different ways you can think about it. And it varies from the relationship between group to group, which I think is interesting, too. Um, kind of very much like a, um, a libertarian Marxism meets material conditions of the Middle East kind of, like, arrangement. And, I mean, that's very much the, the position that they come from, too, right? The PKK was founded in the 1980s as a hardline Marxist-Leninist organization adapting the the Kurdish struggle to the material conditions of of the region that they wanted to inhabit peacefully. Um, and it's just kind of evolved since then. But in the early 2000s, I think, Ochilan started reading... Bookchin's books. Um, somebody sent him copies uh, in his prison. He is allowed to read and send letters and, and write and stuff. So he does communicate with the outside world. He's quite prolific, actually. Um, and he start, he wrote a a book called Democratic Confederalism, which is his adaptation of Bookchin's libertarian municipalism, which is for the material conditions of the United States, adapting that to the material conditions of the Middle East, of present-day Kurdistan. And he's really, really interesting because he's received a lot of support and a lot of criticism from a, a lot of different factions. But again, you know, uh, same thing about, like, Makno, when you're an active revolutionary, you make a lot of friends and enemies. And uh, sometimes the line between them can blur and it can shift very fast. Um, a lot of people talk about the, the alliances between the U.S. armed forces and the YPG-YPJ because we were training them and giving them weapons to fight ISIS but and ISIL and however, you know, the Islamic State or whatever. And um, so we recently pulled out of that region and now they're forming an alliance with Assad. Um, and a lot of people are very confused about, you know, well, how could they ally with Assad when they were just allied with the United States? And the answer is very simple. Is it The Kurds, or I guess the regional forces in present-day Kurdistan, they know that Assad and the U.S., and they're not looking out for their interests. They know that these are just kind of alliances of convenience, and so they're continuing to uh, look out for themselves. It's a very, like, material conditions kind of thing. You can't win a revolution if you're dead. If you let militants, if you let radical, you know, Islamic militants take over your area, that's... As much of a threat as if Turkish forces, you know, invade or if Syrian forces were to suddenly turn on them. And I don't even understand all of the alliances between Syrian forces because there are so, so, so many different ones and they have varying degrees of association with the Ba'athists and Assad state and their relationship to other cells in the Middle East. And I know Russia is really involved in funding a lot of Middle Eastern cells, and they're not very transparent the same way that the U.S. is very opaque uh, in who we fund and who we don't fund to the point where some of our own intelligence agents are learning these things after the fact. Um, It's just very, very messy. Uh, And, you know, like, like all things that happen in the Middle East, it's messy because the Middle East is a tumultuous region. It's a strategically important region for the three major superpowers. I mean, I could go on and on. But yeah, Ochilan is really, really cool. He's got a sick mustache. (laughs) And uh, it's really funny. I saw a meme where it's like, you see before and after pics of Ochilan, he didn't look like Bookchin. And then he read Bookchin and wrote Democratic Confederalism. And then suddenly in pictures, he started to look a lot like Bookchin, which is just kind of like, I don't know, I just think it's really, really funny that he wasn't just like, oh, this guy's ideology is is cool. I'm also going to steal his, like... ...1960s, yeah, very much aesthetic, like this kind of... He wears, like, lab suit, like, 1960s jumpsuit kind of things with the pocket protector and all the pens in it, and he's got the big mustache and the big smile, and Ochilan already had the mustache. He was like, I'm going for the rest of it, man. I'm going to cop Bookchin's look. And they wanted to meet. I know that... um, Debbie Bookchin tried to organize a meeting between them in the early 2000s, but by the time they got around to it, Bookchin's health was failing. Um, I believe he died in 2006 or 2007, something like that. Um, but they do a lot of really good work. Uh, his family and his, his foundations, they carry on doing a lot of good work in Vermont and stuff. They're a little anti-nuclear for me, which I like nuclear energy. I think that it's just done poorly. Honestly, I think that it's because it's left at the hands of states and corporations and not in direct service of, of people that the, the kind of oversight it has isn't really focused on providing safe and clean energy. But whatever, I, I can get behind solar and wind just as easily, if not more easily. So,
0: I always thought that Bookchin kind of looked like Super Mario a little
1: bit. he definitely does he could uh bookchin as wario actually
0: (laughs) (laughs) right yeah that might be actually even better
1: that would be it and then and then makno as as waluigi (laughs) i can post that on my my justice for waluigi page the waluigi Shina, i guess would be the free territory of waluigi which he's like i guess waluigi is funny in relation to makno because he's also like he's commonly considered a curiosity of the of the mario universe but he's been brought to prominence a lot recently by becoming a meme a couple times over (laughs) uh one of my very good friends runs the justice for waluigi page and made me an admin some time ago and it's just been so cool seeing people give this outpouring of support for like waluigi who's suddenly like a leftist figure also like i love remember when the right first stole pepe from the meme and they keep trying to steal stuff well, the left is, like, stealing Gritty and stealing Waluigi and stealing all this stuff from the cultural zeitgeist, and it really, really makes me happy. More things need to be canon as being culturally leftist, you know what I mean? Uh, yes. And not just fucking anti-communist stereotypes or whatever people right. think of now.
0: Right, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? It's actually kind of ironic that I, I really credit memes and posting more for radicalizing me and i think re-in- reintegrate or it really integrating kind of more marxist anarchist ideas
1: oh yeah i mean i i i absolutely think that my radicalization was um if not propelled definitely like crystallized by meme right. culture um and and half the reason i make the anarchist memes that i do too is because it's not that i don't think marxist Memes and, like, Leninist memes and stuff don't do a good job. I just want that energy because I feel like MLs really were, like, the driving force in really bringing the left into meme culture. All of the big fucking leftist memers I know that run big influential pages and stuff are Marxist-Leninists. And I have nothing but respect for the way that they handle their online presences and, and spread anti-capitalist propaganda that's fucking awesome i just wanted to bring like i wanted to bring that energy to my corner of politics and i i especially wanted to do it in a way because here's the other thing is um for as much as i talk about like the conflict between machno and trotsky and and for as much as i recognize that historical conflicts between anarchists and marxists are a thing that happened and, and betrayals have happened and innumerable deaths and this and that I don't think that in the present day anarchists have a single fucking reason to be fighting with Marxist-Leninists. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's so many groups out there that are synthesizing both sets of ideals. Uh, most of my leftist friends are not anarchists. I find that I typically get along better with non-anarchist leftists than I do with other anarchists. I feel like maybe I narcissistically want other anarchists to be an anarchist like I'm an anarchist. Um, and it's easier knowing that somebody's like a Leninist. I'm like, well, we're just going to have disagreements um but it's it's crazy and the amount of the amount of meme culture out there i I've, I've been doing this thing with my meme pages where i'll let it run as like a non-leftist page for a while and then i'll start posting like crypto leftist stuff like Waluigi says there are six empty homes in the United States for every homeless person. What do you think about that? And I get like these chuds in my fucking comments who are like, well, maybe Waluigi should know that like just because a house is empty doesn't mean it's habitable, this and that. And I'm like, hmm, maybe somebody's going to find out Waluigi's a fucking communist in two, three (laughs) weeks. Nice. So yeah, it's been fun. I, I really hope that with my podcasting and with my moving leftist memes around the internet and putting them on pages that have X number of followers or whatever, that I am helping people realize that even if they're not going to be my specific brand of leftist or or a brand of politics that I explicitly approve of, that maybe they can escape this kind of illusion of capitalist realism that we all live under that says, like, you know, this is the status quo, this is the way that things not just are, but kind of, like, we're destined to be. Uh, And it's inescapable. I feel like that's very much like the dominant social attitude right now is like, this is just the way things are because this is the way human nature inevitably works out. And I think that's such a foolish, fucking um, counterproductive, silly place to start. uh, To even just to to echo Bookchin, he said, um, the idea that what currently exists must necessarily exist is the acid that corrodes all revolutionary thinking and i think memes are a really good way to spark people's imagination it's like what science fiction was in the 50s and 60s it's like what anime was in the 80s and 90s right it's this exciting fucking weird new world that doesn't make any sense to you right now but you're hoping to like learn the signifiers and 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 you're amazed by it i want leftist ideology to have that kind of inspiring effect in people you know uh that's why i love the energy of the old utopian socialists the pre marxist socialists like charles fourier who despite being notoriously anti-semitic at least did have like an idea for he's like well this is a one this is what a wonderful society could be right like if the social democrats gained power and made reforms and we just reformed our way to fucking flying cars (laughs) and like money in everybody's pocket and food on everybody's table wouldn't that be great and even though i'm like well obviously that's not the way we're gonna get there yes that would be great and yes what's another way we can think about think about getting there because that's why I'm an anarchist because I think that's the best way to get there unite people with with their imminent solutions to their imminent problems and and you will gain traction and leninists say unite people with each other in a party formula with an educated leadership and and we'll be able to get there and 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 your maoists say okay well both of those are good but you what you really need is a is a mass line and and people educating each other and and the development of a vanguard from the very very bottom up and and I think they're all they're all great tactics. And if anything, I think that we should have more tactics. You know, people should be coming to me with tactics where I'm like, "Is that left communism? Is that? I don't know what that is, but that's a cool idea. I want to try it." Like for me, I'd really like to get consumers' unions together, where we, you know, everybody who is under the thumb of a fucking like, there's a, wa- a monopoly on water services in my area. Pennsylvania American water controls everything. If I got 15,000 people in the city of Pittsburgh to sign up and say, we're boycotting Pennsylvania American water until their rates go down, their fucking rates would go down. So like, even if it's just little stuff, traction like that,
0: direct action
1: unions, direct action. Exactly. And, and a diversity of tactics because there's a diversity of problems. And for as much as I love historical leftism and revolutionary history, you're not going to get all the answers to a present day issue by examining the issues of the past, you know it's it you can't start a revolution in two thousand and eighteen with the same tactics that got people to be revolutionary during a time when there was no indoor plumbing or you know even more to the point no internet uh, and people talk about the revolutionary capability of the internet, and I think it's definitely there, but I think we ignore the fact that the revolutionary capability of the internet like Capitalism has built kind of like a a firewall to keep that from becoming too potentiated. Uh, And it's going to take a lot of leftist activity to push through or climb over that firewall or whatever physical analogy you want to use for overcoming it.
0: Oh, man. I, uh, so I was in grad school right around the time that really social media or web 2.0 or new media, whatever you want to call it was kind of emerging at the time. And I had such a utopian viewpoint towards it. I was like, oh, this is <laughs> this is gonna be fucking amazing. It's gonna democratize everything. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna be the greatest thing ever. And like ten years later I'm like, oh fuck.
1: Yeah, it never <laughs> turns out the way you want it right? to, does it? Remember when everybody was talking about the internet of things? Oh yeah. When it wasn't gonna be it wasn't gonna be like an internet internet anymore, it was gonna be like this. This thing that was like slowly creeping into your everyday world with like fucking smart microwaves and fucking smart bridges, toilet paper. (laughs) Yeah, smart toilet paper. Smart shower. I could
0: go for some smart toilet paper.
1: Yeah. Can I get can I get some smart toilet paper? Actually, 2019. It knows
0: exactly how many wipes are necessary so that you don't get (laughs) uh, a hemorrhoid (laughs) from from excessive wiping.
1: If if I don't wipe correctly, I want my toilet paper to 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 fucking ding like Alexa and be like, right. John, you missed a spot. I need, John, I need a push notification
0: a on my phone or my my <laughs> Apple Watch letting me know.
1: I should just be able to turn the automatic bidet on and off. That's what <laughs> I really want. Just a fucking laser scope bidet, just a little sensor and like a little. That's that's living in the future. You know, but I have a feeling two thousand nineteen is going to deliver. Deliver on a lot of stuff. Uh,
0: well, you know that there's uh, people. A lot of people are buying these clip-on bidets that clip on to your toilet. What? <laughs> yes. A friend That's of That's amazing. A friend of mine actually has one. It's pretty fucking funny. Wow.
1: <laughs> I was um, I was uh, cruising around the internet because I I don't know how I even ended up getting here. I was going to try to tell you the story of how I ended up at this point. But there's this thing I guess in Uh, i think it's in india and i might be getting this wrong but it's like a little hose that's attached to most toilet stalls and you just kind of like reach it in over the rim of the toilet and spray your butt with it (laughs) and it sounds really fucking awesome just like kind of a little do-it-yourself bidet like a manual bidet i can get into that i like the i like the combination of like Hands off cleanliness, but with control. Right? Like <laughs> I feel like French people are maybe a little too trusting and just pushing a button on their toilet and expecting the jet of water to know what to do. Like yeah, that doesn't that's know what bourgeois. to do. That's a yeah. jet of water. Yeah. Very that's bourgeois people. Yeah, that is revisionist. <laughs> uh the politics of toilets. That remi- that's like that um that Zizek quote where he talks about the shape of French toilets as being like so that when the excrement slides immediately to the back so that you don't have to see it for like quick <laughs> flushing. And then German toilets have like a step that kind of like holds the excrement so that you can examine it if you need to for like, you know, your health or whatever reason. Give and it a then, little waffle uh, a bit. Yeah, just get get to know it, you know, just make a friend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and British toilets are, are like a mixture of the two where it, it falls and it doesn't – it's not out of sight – but it's also not like prominently on display and Hegel um, or I guess Zizek through Hegel, I'm not sure what the implication of who did the analysis is here, but the analysis is that the the French toilet represents revolutionary hastiness or leftism. The German toilet represents like contemplative and thorough reflection or conservatism. And the British toilet represents like a marriage of ideas, like it's supposed to be utilitarianism. And so the, the, the big zinger at the end of that is you. You may think you've escaped ideology, but as soon as you return to the to the toilet, you're n- once again knee deep knee deep in it. <laughs> um, it makes me wonder what the politics of the bidet versus the little hand hose versus the the toilet paper is, and I gotta say, toilet paper is probably the most regressive. <laughs> It's got to be the one that gets us the least clean, right? Like, definitely, it can't be the most effective way to take care of your bottom. And I feel
0: like, is it really like, how many trees are we cutting down for toilet paper?
1: Mm. Absolutely, like that water that goes right back into the water supply. That just reintroduced into the water cycle, no problem. That toilet paper is going to have to go to a landfill, decompose for God knows how many years sift through a bunch of other trash that's not decomposing end up in the dirt and then who even knows when a tree will grow on that spot that's not <laughs> that's not sustainable this is not libertarian municipalism <laughs> washing your butt with washing your butt with a spray nozzle is libertarian municipalism
0: i have a a short story or anecdote for you about back to going back to the internet and its utility oh, yeah. so and i think i might have told you this before but when i was probably 10 years old i went to see Um, what god damn it who's the guy that wrote uh something wicked this way comes and fahrenheit 451 oh bradbury bradbury so i go to see ray bradbury give a speech the only thing i can remember from this speech is that he said and the internet the internet is crap (laughs) and for the for the longest time i thought that he was just being kind of a you know, a grouchy old dude, but now I'm like, yeah. maybe that son of a bitch was right.
1: You know, 50-50. <laughs> 50-50. It's like the the fucking Hayao Miyazaki uh, thing where he's he's sitting at his desk and he, he he's just like, anime was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it's all trash. And it's so true because, um, I, I don't know, I have a theory about culturally relevant things. When there's a new culturally relevant thing, the internet, whatever, fucking... Even you think about the launch of viral video, that was basically just like whenever it became not cost prohibitive to use videos as a common thing on the internet, the viral video started to emerge. So whenever the forces kind of are just right for something to be born, when it still has all of its potential and none of its fucking flaws yet that's when you're going to see the most revolutionary shit come out of it. You know, people talk about the golden age of television. It was right after television started to become household. People talk about the golden age of forums or RSS threads. Or, you know, the Internet's gone through so many golden ages. Lolcats, fucking early viral videos. And you had viral videos before the Internet, too. America's Funniest Home Videos, stuff like that. So it's easy to see how, like, the disillusionment of something being around for 10 years can really, really take its toll on somebody. And especially, let's say you're somebody like Bradbury, who spent his entire life watching technologies rise, become promising and prominent, and then become shitty for one reason or another. I really don't blame him for having a little bit of old man syndrome about the internet. I'm starting to get old man syndrome about the internet myself. I wonder how fucking long until it happens to podcasts. Although, I'm still pretty (laughs) fresh on the podcast. I, I had recorded episode four I think or five of beep beep lettuce before I had ever voluntarily gone and just listened to a podcast on my own. Um, Interesting. And then I I was hooked. Yeah. Oh, it was so stupid. I was all like proud of it. And then I listened to a couple episodes of Street Fight Radio, and I was like, oh, I should have been listening to podcasts this whole time. <laughs> right.
0: I uh, yeah. I've kind of felt the same way. I was kind of like, eh, podcasts. That that's for fucking that's for fucking geeks. I'm yeah. Well, and this. I got a
1: desk job. So having the desk job really made me want to listen to podcasts, because when you're just looking at the same Excel sheet all day, uh, having somebody telling jokes in your ear or even just talking about like a fucking meatball sub they ate can be a really good time compared to listening to the same, you know, playlist. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I just
0: got tired of listening to the same playlist. And so then I got. And I don't have time to seek out
1: new music. I'm old. You know, I'm I'm 27 now. I'll be 30. I'll have to get a cane and a walker. And it's just going to be a really taxing time on me, and I'm not allowed to be interested in new music anymore. <laughs> the same, the same five math rock bands and uh, footwork DJs that I've been listening to for the last five years. That's all I'm going to listen to for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> oh man, I'm I'm 36. I'm I'm way up there.
1: <laughs> yeah, you are. You are. I, uh, I'm totally stuff dead that you listened to in high school is called oldies now, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I think, I I can't wait for the day I hear a fucking Eminem song on oldies radio. You know what I'm talking about? They're going to be like, now we're going back to the real classics, back when CDs were still in circulation. This is a track from someone you may remember, Eminem. And it's that song, Kim, about
0: killing his wife.
1: (laughs) I just imagine they finally play the unedited version of, what was his big hit, uh, you're going to lose yourself, something, something.
0: I th- yeah, it's just something. It's lose so, yourself.
1: Yeah. yeah, lose yourself. There you go. Yeah. I, I, they're just going to play unedited versions of lose yourself, and they're going to be like, remember what used to pass as transgressive back in the day? <laughs> <laughs> this is a little audio clip from when people thought video games would cause violence in the real world.
0: <laughs> video games in Marilyn Manson.
1: Video games of Marilyn Manson, yeah, Marilyn Manson had one of his own ribs removed, not to suck his own dick, but to make Grand Theft Auto come true. It was part <laughs> part of casting a spell
0: exactly, oh, that's great, oh man,
1: yeah, it's funny, like I feel like Because um, any any mention of Marilyn Manson in like that era just brings up like Mall core fucking goths and stuff to me and one it's super notable how much that aesthetic is back in the my chemical romance fucking bangs and weird highlights and stuff but two it also really reminds me of the way that like leftist podcasters and people who lift listen to leftist podcasts and stuff feel like kind of um a very distinct new subculture um in a way that I haven't seen since I joined up with, like, a a quote-unquote DIY music scene, like, seven or eight years ago. Uh, And it's weird how I feel, like, reborn in a lot of ways into, like, the world of podcasting. (laughs) Uh, Being born out of this world of, like, packing my fucking sweat and blood-covered drums into various vans and carrying them around the Midwest for no money at all. Also, podcasting is way more easy to, like, actually get to pay for itself. Like I wouldn't say I'm balling out right now, but BP Bledis is covering its own expenses and that is something my bands have never ever fucking done. <laughs> Not ever.
0: Through so you're funding funding it through Patreon primarily or do you have cuz you don't do it you... entirely. Okay.
1: We do a little bit of merch. We we throw some special edition shirts and stuff in the store but we mostly do it so that we can cuz we have a few we have a handful of $25 a month patrons right. and you know we're we're all like DIY musician types so when we started a podcast we didn't think anybody was going to join up in the $25 a month category like that's crazy i don't have 25 extra dollars a month ever i don't even have 5 extra dollars a month and so we send these people shirts as often as we can like fun pieces of stuff for them to wear out cuz if if they're going to give us, like, that much of their fucking hard-earned cash, and we're going to call ourselves leftists, like, people who respect the labor that others do to sustain themselves, then we got to give them something in return. Um, and it it is just crazy. I mean, we get a new $5 Patreon subscriber, like, every day or every other day somewhere between there, and that just blows my mind. Like, I, I'm so grateful to people for supporting me talking like an idiot into a microphone. That's the other thing is, like, I feel like people think you need special qualifications or you have to already be popular in some way or another, or you have to be an established presence, you know, to put yourself out there artistically, whether it's a podcast or or music or visual art or something. And that's just such a fucking load. You know, people love absolute beginners. A lot of the people in the music scene, a lot of the people in the podcast scene that I've seen get popular were not already established. You know, they came to it with some rough ideas, and they polished them up, and they worked hard on them for a while, and they just, they did it. They pushed through, and that's that's the kind of potential that I think everybody should be able to have. That's why I like podcasting so much because it feels like it gives me a little taste of that kind of potential that I see a lot of people getting access to.
0: You know that uh, back to Marilyn Manson. You know he's he had a capitalist critique in uh, the beautiful people.
1: Oh really? Yeah, his, like, I didn't know
0: capitalism that. Capitalism has made it this way. If you look and listen to it later,
1: I will. I will. We can make that the outro. Music <laughs> nice. For this that'd be episode. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always liked. Um, I always liked like goth industrial music. I think um, I really like that those projects that JG Thirlwell put together, Fetus and Scraping Fetus off the Wheel, and all these other ultra provocative band names that he. Use the word "fetus" for, and I like Marilyn Manson, and I like um, you know Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. I've always been real into like the intensity of the music, but I always felt like the kind of, I guess, the social indications that come with it, the kind of like social aesthetics were like real fucking cheesy. Like I don't, I don't even really like the Misfits. You know what I mean? Like I'm much more of a Dead Kennedys guy when it comes to punk because I feel like the Misfits were just so like glammed up and trying to be like this like weird like look how aesthetic we are and i'm like i don't really the the only thing that's really gotten me with how quote unquote aesthetic it is in the last since i've been alive i guess is is like vaporwave i think vaporwave is undeniable so much aesthetic strength in vaporwave and even like you know i like future funk of course because i like faster tempos and stuff, but it's all basically vaporwave. It's like saying, oh, I like jazz, but what I really like is ultra-technical bebop, only from the early 1960s. It's like, nobody really fucking cares, dude. Um, But like I said, I just listen to the same five math rock bands (laughs) and the same five footwork DJs over and over again because that's the music that goes through my head when I walk around in the morning. It's just like, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. All fucking day. I can't control it. Foe work made me an anarchist. I'll say that.
0: <laughs> That's funny. I was just about to ask, I was going to say, who, is the, who are the anarchist or even leftist musicians out there?
1: Oh, Chumbawamba <laughs> is my biggest influence. I would say I love, 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 love Chumbawamba. They are so much more than just the song Tub Thumping, but also Tub Thumping is a great song. Uh, my mom had that album on CD when I was a kid. And there was, there's a sketch they do over some noise on that scene or on that CD where they're talking about preparing monkey brains, like as a culinary delicacy. And it's like, suck the brains out using a hole in the head, scoop the brains out using a, a spoon and you know blast the brain out using water or air. And I'm like seven years old. This is my mom's like cleaning the house music. And I'm like, what the fuck are we listening to? But uh, as I got older and I examined their music, they have really, really great anarchist communist principles. They literally shout out Kropotkin in their song lyrics on some of their albums. Um, they got signed to a record label that they like famously defaced the building, Capitol Records, I think they are. They they like graffitied their building and got sued for it. And then three or four years later, they're on that record label. That's hilarious. Um they're crazy, and people think is just this like, one-hit wonder because they only ever had one song popular in the United States. But um, listeners of podcasts, I urge you, dig deep into Chumbawamba's discography. You will find very, very revolutionary stuff, uh, not just in terms of political content, which it is there, but also in terms of production styles, switching between genres, marrying things that are as disparate as English folk, acid techno, breakbeat music... Um, hard rock, metal, funk music. They're crazy. They're just nuts. Uh, I also like Atari Teenage Riot. I'm not sure if they're anarchist explicitly, uh, but they have a very kind of like just rebellious kind of edgy feel. And there's a, there's a rap group out of New Zealand called Hammer and Sickle, uh, and we use their music for outro music on Beep Beep Lettuce sometimes. And I gotta say, they're pretty good. Oh, and my co-host Todd from BP Bledis has been doing anti-capitalist raps, and he just sang for Christmas. He sang a rendition of White Christmas called White Genocide. <laughs> that
0: was
1: well, uh, oh, it was perfect. Can, oh, was can we find
0: this? Is there a recording of this anywhere?
1: You yeah, uh, White Genocide. You can find it on uh, BP Bledis, What I think is episode 19? nineteen, okay. um, but it should also be there. Should be a link to it in the in the show notes there as well. Uh, and I got to say, Todd's singing voice, mm, I can't kiss my fingers enough. Mm, so good. Uh, I wish I could sing. I can't sing. I can play pretty much every instrument in the band, but I cannot walk up to the microphone and wow an audience with my voice whatsoever. <laughs> so
0: um,
1: I'm going to work on that.
0: I think, uh, are, are you familiar? How familiar are you with Immortal Technique?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I like think immortal he's pretty, technique.
0: pretty legit on the uh, leftist side.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, and um, there's another leftist rapper that I learned about through Revolutionary Left Radio, I think, whose name is Bamboo, like B-A-M-B and then U with an accent over it, if I'm not mistaken. And I haven't dug deep into his discography or anything, but from what I've heard, I've really enjoyed his stuff. And yeah, now that you mention it, the Immortal Technique tracks that I remember – are definitely friendly with anti-capitalism if not overtly anti-capitalist. So that's really cool. There is like um there's not enough leftist music out there. Uh I really want to start like a but I also feel like and I guess it makes sense cuz like revolutionary musicians typically tend to embrace like rage against the machine, fused rap and rock and they like to be edgy and like and make a style of music that's typically more like underground as it were, but I'd really like to start a leftist like Really polished jazz fusion band, <laughs> right? Like, can you imagine if, like, um, oh god, like uh, Herb Alpert <laughs> or like uh, like George Benson was like a dedicated anarchist communist? That's what I want, just like sick, smooth funk grooves with like horns and piano sections and big, sweeping, beautiful arrangements and key changes and everything. But it's all about taking power back from the bourgeoisie, all about redistributing it to the people. Uh, God, that would be really, really nice because I've been on this big kick recently listening to like city pop music on YouTube, which I know is kind of like popular as a meme right now. But I got to say, it's really fucking good. Tatsura Yamashita... Or Yamashita, or however you say his last name, he is the man. Fucking American musicians could only dream of being as talented and as good at producing records as this guy was. Is I don't know if he's still around.
0: I've had the pipe dream of creating a future punk band.
1: Future punk. What is future, future punk, punk is that like? Um, Atari Teenage Riot.
0: I I don't know if there's. I don't, in my head it's like. Some version of, like, noise music mixed with, I don't know, I, I, what I thought about doing was getting really stoned, and then just recording rants into, <laughs> just crazy <laughs> rants, and then, like, fucking with the vocals, like, the pitch, like, modulating all of that, and then oh, yeah. putting it over this really dark noise music, like, MERSBO or something. That was Yeah, my yeah, idea. Like,
1: like, that sounds tight, like, noise music. Synthwave, spoken word, and like just weird shit all stacked on top of each other. I used to be in a in like a hardcore punk slash math rock band called Radio Signal. And we sometimes joked that we we thought we sounded like we were from the future, but we didn't like use synthesizers or like vocal effects or anything, even though a lot of us were into electronic music. It was just like we'd write punk riffs and alternate time signatures and then try to carry them as like a groove through as much of the song as possible because the math rock bands that I had been playing in mostly were like trying to write songs that were like very, very different all the way through. And this band was like, well, we'll write the riffs in alternate time signatures. But as far as arrangements go, there's no problem with just going like A, B, A, B, C, A, B, outro, totally cool. And it's almost like people really gravitated towards that band a lot more than some of the other projects I tried to work on at that time. So, but yeah, I, I, I'd really like to get more stuff going. I just got a Yamaha, uh, or no, actually a Roland uh, electronic drum kit in my apartment. I've been living in this apartment for eight months, and I've I've kept drum kits in my house my entire life since I started playing when I was like 15. Um, and it, I didn't have a kit in my apartment. I finally have a kit in my apartment. So anybody who wants to collab with me, you just let me know. I, I can send you drum tracks on a moment's notice. I can record so easy now. Recording with a digital kit is, like, the most gratifying thing in the world as a drummer. There's no setting up microphones. I just plug in two cables. Two cables! Drummers around the world shit their pants. Two cables. (laughs) Unbelievable.
0: Well, before we get into the weeds too much, uh, I think we're at a pretty good stopping point as far as the podcast goes. Um, Yeah, yeah. you want to take some time to uh, plug your Plug Beep Beep Lettuce and your social media accounts, whatever you've got? Throw it out there, man.
1: Definitely. So, if you liked what you heard, or you didn't like what you heard, and you want to harass me, or whatever you want to do, uh, I'm a co-host on a podcast called Beep Beep Lettuce. You can find us on Facebook. We're also at Beep Beep Leaf on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter as at underscore totalhack. You can find me on Facebook as John Paul Zieglerman. It's my face holding a can of Ham's Beer with no hands uh, as the profile picture. If you need to find me, you can find my footwork music at Luminaire. L-U-M-I-N-A-I-R-E-P-G-H for Pittsburgh.bandcamp.com. Uh, and you can find me all over the internet. You can just search my name and you'll find some inflammatory shit that I said. <laughs> big shout outs to the rest of my co-hosts on Beep Beep Lettuce. Big shout outs to you for having me on the podcast. Big shout outs to my podcasting friends over at Mandatorio T, um, who were also kind enough to have me on their podcast. And big shout outs to the universe Anarchist communism will prevail. Machno only did a couple of things <laughs> wrong. Uh, it's been great having you all hear my voice.
0: Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks uh, for coming on today. And I, my, like I said, my main two takeaways were, number one, Machno was a forager when it came to, to weed. So, mids forager. A mids forager. And number two, a Chad Valsell. So I think those...
1: Chad Valsall. If you take
0: any two facts away from this podcast... Those are the ones that you want to remember. So,
1: <laughs> Nestor Makhno, Mids Forager, Chad Volsell Robin Hood of Revolutionary Ukraine. Just hold that dear to your heart and you'll be all good.
0: This is Podcast with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week.
1: <laughs> Toodles.